Hey, I'm Mel. And I'm Andres, and you're listening to Mixtape, your favorite Afro-Latin podcast. What she said. It is important to celebrate what is happening with Bomba today, but without forgetting the origin and who were and who are the Bomba elders. So while doing Bomba, I think it's crucial to embody the Black and Afro-Puerto Rican cultures in a more visible, consistent, and political way. Today's track title is inspired by the song Tocame la Bomba, Play Bomba to Me, by Félix Alduen. Today, we're listening to Aquí está el roble, Here's the Oak Tree, by La Familia Cepeda. The Cepeda family is, in reality, a multi-generational endeavor devoted to the promotion and preservation of the two most known expressions of Afro-Puerto Rican music and dance, bomba and plena. The patriarch of the Cepeda family and the subject of this song, Rafael Cepeda Atiles, was born in Puerta Tierra in 1908 in Santurce, Puerto Rico, an area originally named San Mateo de Cangrejos. Immersed in the bomba culture since birth, Rafael became a widely recognized folklorist, composer, musician, and dancer. He composed a myriad of songs in bomba and in plena. Many of them used by the likes of Cortijo y su Combo, El Gran Combo, and Machito and his Afro-Cubans. Rafael Cepeda, also known as the Patriarch of Bomba, married Caridad Brenes in 1922, who would become herself a recognized dancer, choreographer, and costume designer. Caridad and Rafael had 12 children, who they all immersed in the Afro-Puerto Rican traditions and with whom they cemented the cultural legacy of the family, making them the maximum exponents of the bomba cangrejera. Today's song, Aquí está el roble, pays homage to Rafael Cepeda, who was also known as the roble mayor, the main oak tree. The song celebrates his efforts preserving and promoting these two separate and very important expressions of Afro-Puerto Rican culture, bomba and plena. The Cepeda family sings, Aquí está el roble, señores, ¿quieren saber? Aquí está el roble, se llama Don Rafael. Here's the oak tree, gentlemen, in case you want to know. Here's the oak tree, gentlemen, his name is Don Rafael. The Cepeda family continues, que suenen ya los tambores, África vive con él, protegiendo mi cultura como le gustaba a él. Let the drum sound, Africa lives with him, protecting my culture as he likes to do. What a treasure the Cepeda family has been for the preservation of Afro-Puerto Rican culture. I'm sure we'll hear more about the family today. Welcome to track number nine of our second season, Tócame la Bomba, Play Bomba to Me. This is... Welcome to the Mixtape Podcast and Feliz Año Nuevo. We are here with our first episode of 2023, and we are so grateful you have joined us for the continuation of our rhythm season. I'm your host, Mel, and I'm joining you from my new city, Fairfax, Virginia, in the DMV area of the United States. How you dare leave us, Melissa? That was <laughs> very sad, but muy, muy feliz año, mi gente. I'm your other host, Andres, and for now, I'm still in the Triangle area, still in North Carolina ready to talk about one more incredible Afro-Latin rhythm. And I will say that if you hear my voice being a little weird, it's because I'm a little sick, but, you know, bear with it. It'll be okay. Wishing healing for Andres. <laughs> Thank you. 
If you are a regular listener, we are so happy to have you listening in today. If you're listening for the first time, you should know that in this season, season two, we explore different Afro-Latin and African rhythms we encounter while social dancing. In one episode, we discuss the rhythm, and in the subsequent Were You Listening episode, we feature a song associated with the rhythm. Yeah, we discuss the history of the rhythm as well as the dance, the movement associated with it, and we also discuss how we can continue to center and recognize its Black roots. Our season so far has consisted of Afro-Latin rhythms, including samba, the complex of Afro-Cuban rhythms, the blend of rhythms known as salsa, bachata, merengue, the African rhythm kizomba, cumbia, and reggaeton. We spent 2022 digging really deep into the cumbia and reggaeton rhythms, so you're going to want to check those episodes out. For this episode, we are focusing on a rhythm that will have you playing music with your body. The rhythm we are talking about today is bomba. So our bomba episode was actually encouraged by Andres. Tell us why you thought bomba would be a good rhythm to explore. Well, for me, the idea of creating music with your movement as a dancer in Bomba was just so enticing, I had to recommend it. And of course, I knew I could convince you because, you know, you're New Yorker and all that. I remember learning a little bit of Bomba for performance with my former folkloric dance company, Grupo Atlantico. Shout out to Carmencita, la directora. And that conversation with the drummer trying to interpret your movement was just magical. So here we are, about to talk about this wonderful rhythm. Well, I'm so glad you've recommended it. In preparation for this episode, we did a ton of reading that you will be able to find on the resources tab of our website. We met with incredible guests you will be able to learn from in this episode. And I actually took a bomba percussion and dance class right here in the DMV area with Semilla Cultural. After listening to today's episode, it's our hope that you will find a local group where you too can engage with the bomba rhythm. Yes, and it's my hope that Melissa will record a bomba video and will share it with us. So help me convince her. Feel free to send her encouraging messages about it. Just a thought, putting it out there. Thank you, Andres. (laughs) (laughs) Our first guest is Dr. Sarah Bruno. Sarah is currently a postdoc of Latinx Studies in Arts, Cultures, and Religions at Rice University. She received her PhD in Cultural Anthropology from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. We asked Sarah to walk us through a history of the bomba rhythm. I would say like a like a definite history is difficult. I want to be um, careful with saying what I assume to be the history because everyone has their own type of oral tradition. Because I think something that's also particular to bomba, but also typical of these drum-based oral-based traditions is that whoever your elders are, that is your own like citational practice. The way... I understand the roots of bomba is definitely being from enslaved Africans brought over and coalescing their own drumming practices into one that um, is unique in Puerto Rico, but also resembles dances in Haiti. So once the Haitian revolution happens and French plantation owners are panicked and trying to leave Haiti and also some of the French islands, they're moving to like Anglophone islands, they're moving to Spanish islands and the West coast of Puerto Rico, which faces like a lot of the French um, Francophone Caribbean, Mayagüe, you start to see Mayagüe um, develop its own distinct rhythm called Olande. And Olande dance moves, like the grammar of movement is very much similar to that you would find in like Guoca, um, in Guadalupe or in Martinique. So you, you start to see this history that isn't necessarily in like a textbook, but it's marked and ingrained on the body. You start to see a history that's kind of spoken, that's sonic, And again, it isn't necessarily written in a textbook, but textbook wise, if I were to be like, this is the history of Bomba. Bomba is first mentioned in a book that actually it isn't even written by a like a Puerto Rican, right? It's written by a French botanist 
who is sent to Puerto Rico to kind of survey the land and the colonial like project. And this is why you'll always hear Bomba y Plena. So a French botanist comes, not even an ethnomusicologist. He's like, I'm surveying the like flora of this archipelago. And I see these people dancing Bomba y Plena and Bomba with hand drums and movement. And that's the first time we see like Bomba in the way we know it today, like as a musical genre. But what he's describing is Plena. That would be like the historical point of Bomba, right? So we begin to see Bomba kind of bring enslaved folks together. It reminds them of home. It reminds them of a before. And some of the writings, um, like early historical writings, name Bomba as like a bozal sound, B-O-Z-A-L, sometimes B-O-Z-A-L-E-S. And that means like, African pre-colonization, natural de Africa, right, is what they would say, like, in census records, like, enslaved folks who were born in Africa. So it was untranslatable, basically. It was illegible. And because it was illegible and they start to see it gain popularity, like, gather folks around, it's, it's threatening to the planter class, right, to the colon, colon, like colonizer type of vibe, the elites. And so this continues and folks are not only continuing to meet, but they're also starting to use Bomba as a space to plot, to conspire, to... Um, plot out how to escape the plantation, how to burn down the plantation. So you begin to see that bomba is then linked to like fugitivity, marinage in the, in the big marinage way, right? Like not the petite marinage where like we are feeling a sense of escape, but actual literal escape. And because of that, there's a, then an issued slave code where you can only dance bomba on Sundays. Because in Puerto Rico, unlike the United States, especially in the South, right, um, certain Southern states, there were no legislation that allowed for free Black people pre-emancipation. In Puerto Rico, there were free Black people. There were free people of color or Black-descended people. And Bomba becomes a space where these freed Black people and enslaved folks can gather all at once. So the the colonial elites, they're trying to like basically control that and be like, well, y'all can only meet on Sundays for this, for this amount of time. And so that also holds power. And then even post-emancipation, when there's this beginning of a Black working class, right, like still very much impoverished, trying to make life, like the labor that they're getting paid for is like, they're not making many wages. You start to see like laws in place about sound ordinances, still trying to control bomba, folks getting uh, citations for throwing parties in their marquesina without a permit. Um, so then we begin to see more of a of what can resemble a contemporary policing of sound. And so I would say that's kind of like a bomba history writ large. There's more about people, right? So like specific bomberos, specific bomberas, but that's what I would say is like the writ large. We also met with Marian Torres Lopez, the manager and director of Taller Tambouye, a professor at the dance department at Universidad Sagrado Corazón, a folklorist, dancer, musician, choreographer, singer, and cultural events manager. Marianne is busy, but she was kind to spend some time with us. As we prepare for the episode, we'll learn about the contribution of the Cepeda family, especially Caridad Brenes de Cepeda. Why are Caridad and the Cepeda family important in the development of Bomba? Marian's answers are translated and read by Marisa Melchiorre. Caridad Brenes de Cepeda is a matriarca de la Bomba. 
Caridad Cepeda is a bomba matriarch. She is from the Cepeda family. She was the wife of Don Rafael Cepeda, the patriarch also of the bomba congrejera. Doña Caridad stood out as a dancer, a very powerful dancer, a visibly black woman, an Afro-Boricua woman, with such expression, such power in her gaze and in her dance. She, along with Don Rafa, both achieved wonderful things by exposing and making Puerto Rican bomba visible in spaces where it had never occurred before, a feat they achieved in their very difficult era. Thanks to people like her, we are dancing bomba today, and women are also assuming leadership roles. I didn't know Doña Caridad personally. When I entered the world of bomba, she was either very old or had already passed away. But her name and her presence are still in the batallas today. She is still present in that powerful female figure through her dance and through her community deeds as well. Because if something distinguishes the Cepeda family, who come from the Villa Palmeras de Cangrejos neighborhood, it is that it's a family that has dedicated their lives to conserving, protecting, and educating about Puerto Rican bomba for generations. We are talking about 11 generations, possibly, of dancers from the Cepeda family. The one who knows the least in that family, the one who performs the least, the one who is most disconnected from bomba, is still very good at bomba and is a person of knowledge. And Doña Caridad was a pillar of that, of keeping that history alive, of instilling that in her relatives, in her neighbors, in protecting and perpetuating the practice of bomba. For all the women that dance bomba, figures like Doña Caridad and like many other women are our pillar. If these women had not existed, we would not be here. Bomba is an incredibly unique rhythm marked by its interaction between the drummer and the dancer in communicating greater meaning. We asked Marianne to talk to us about the musical structure of bomba, including the instruments that are used. To practice bomba, we can train individually, which is important to improve the level of performance. But bomba is a collective practice. I can't do bomba if I don't have a collective to dance bomba with. There are different roles assigned that we can rotate between. That's the beautiful thing about performing bomba in current times. For bomberos and bomberas, that is, men and women bomba dancers, are training in all performance roles. I am no longer only a dancer, I'm a player, I'm a singer, I'm a composer, I'm a manager. And just like me, there are many people that are doing the work. So when we are going to dance bomba, there has to be a group of people, a corillo. And in that group, there is the one who plays the maraca. In Puerto Rican bomba, a single maraca is used, which is made from calabash tree. The maraca is carried by the one who sings, the main singer. And with the maraca, the beat of the rhythm that will be played is dictated. All the other instrumentalists have to be on the lookout for that call, which is a sound. Everything in bomba deals with calls and responses. I mean, we organize ourselves with signals, many of them unspoken, the large majority unspoken, precisely because this style developed during slavery, where one couldn't speak freely, but we could still communicate with the master around, and the master would not understand anything. We create the mechanisms for that. That's already amazing. So the beat is dictated by the maraca. The maraca can also indicate which rhythm we are going to play. Keeping in mind that bomba has about 30 different rhythms that respond to different regions of Puerto Rico and different expressions and feelings. So once the maraca starts, the main singer does a call. Normally in a bomba song with a regular format, because there are exceptions, the same call is going to be the chorus that the rest of the people are going to respond with. And everyone responds. Nobody is a spectator. If you're standing in a bate, it's to do something, at minimum to do the chorus. That same call is answered with the chorus, and from there on, it's already established the dynamic verse-chorus-verse-chorus. In the verse, the singer can improvise about the theme of the song if the chorus already carries a story or suggests a story. Or the singer can improvise about what is happening in that moment in the bate. And they can be remembering or telling an anecdote about something that happened. 
And then, once the chorus-verse-chorus dynamic is established, in the minor percussion, we also have the quas. These are wooden sticks. Historically, they were struck on the drum's wood. Currently, they are struck on a tiny drum that we put on a stand as to not be kneeling during a set of bomba that lasts for hours. These smaller drums are created for convenience, but the instrument is the sticks, which is what they call quas. If the little drum of the quas is not there, there will always be wood in the drums to strike with the sticks. The quas have a constant rhythm, just like the maraca. Once the chorus and the verse are established, the repetitive chorus, the quas accompany and support the constant rhythm, which does not change, the bass. Going to the major percussion, for the bomba to be established, there must be at least two drums, because there are two types of drums. The first one is the buleador. The buleador is a drum that has the lowest tuning and that, like the quas, the maraca, and the chorus will keep the constant rhythm. That does not change. That is the bass where the primo, the other bomba drum, which has the sharpest tuning and the one that rings out, is the lead drum, the principal drum. The primo can also be called a subidor. It is above the rhythmic bass. It is more pronounced because it is higher pitched, with a slightly drier vibration than the buleador, which has a vibration that is present for a long time. The primo is the drum that here we call the drum that speaks, that plays fast. It improvises percussion patterns over the bass, still listening to the song, because this is not each one for themselves. This is a team effort. And it responds to the intensities of the singer and their improvisation. It reaffirms or softens what the singer is saying with the sound. There is a whole communication of sounds, of vibrations going on there. And the extremely important element Obviously, the dance. No me va a doler. No, no me da pena. Las flores del campo crecen, crecen donde ya quieran. To learn more about rhythms within Bomba and how these rhythms guide how Bomba is danced, we spoke with Mar Cruz. Mar has been a Bomba dancer and practitioner for over 11 years. She dances with her sister, Maria, with the group Parranderos de Loisa and their own group. Bomba Yemaya. You may recognize Mar on the Instagram page Se Baila Bomba. We asked Mar to describe to us how Bomba is danced. Pues mira, en Bomba, normally we dance one at a time, but we could enter in Bomba, like in the in the space that is called the Bate, this the space right in front of the drummers. In that space, we can enter alone, but we can enter too, like in pairs, like we can enter with a partner. But when we do that, we do a paseo together. And then after that, the male does like a little turn to the to the women. Then the women starts dancing. And once she finished the dancing, she goes again. She comes back to the male. The male does a little bit of paseo again. And then he starts dancing. Then he finished the dancing. You know, they go, they like they escort themselves together. But normally, it's one at a time, you know, and, and still it's one at a time. When they do that, there's always one at a time. Why? Because in Bomba, there's one drum that is called Primo o Subidor, that this drum is going to follow every step that the dancer make. It's different from like salsa and merengue and bachata that you need to hear the music so you can catch the rhythm and then, you know, seguir con lo paso. Here in, in Bomba, you do the music, you know, with your entire body, este, with the piquetes. The piquetes is, is the word that we give to the, the steps, right? But yeah, it has to be always one at a time. Back in the day, when they were gathering, inside of the bate, there would be multiple people, but the one that was closest to the drum, to the drummer, was the one that the drummer will follow. That's the thing that you were normally would see on the south side. Like now, like the dancing in the south side, it was it, it was very different. And it was very um, old. We we're lucky enough to have still, you know, um, cultural friends and partners maintaining that, that tradition.
what would you say are the principal or the main steps in bomba? And what are the main elements of the movement within popular bomba rhythms? Okay, so every rhythm has their own step. Like in bomba, there are multiple rhythms of bomba or stasis de bomba, that's how it's called as well. Every rhythm has their own unique step and every step has their own unique, say, say, like energy and spirit to it. For example, we got Zika. We got the step that you're just like almost like walking. Almost like you're marching. And whenever the dancer or dancing is doing this, right? What they're doing is what is called el adorno. El adorno is the basic step of the rhythm that they're playing. So whenever I'm, for example, I'm in a in the bomba show, right? And they're the drummers. The dancer normally is going to be standing on the side of the drummers. Let's say the drummers are um, sitting down like in a straight line or maybe in a semi-circle way. The dancer will be standing on the side and doing the basic step of the rhythm that they're playing. Let's say in this case, they're playing sika. They're, the, the dancer will start doing the sika. And the way that they will do it is in a very like, rigid way they would stand up very straight a lot of you know skirt movement that's like the style of the sika like if we go to let's say another rhythm let's mention coimbe now this coimbe is like the step is almost like the same as the sika but you instead of stepping forward like you're marching forward you're gonna Mark back. You're going to step back, right? In this step, the dancer, whether it's a male or a female, the way that they're going to dance is in, in a more flirtatious way because that's the that's like the energy that it has in Quimbe. For example, like back in the day, in Quimbe, the elders say that whenever a drummer was wanted to like with a, a, a dancer that was a woman, he would play the guembe so she could be, you know, very flirty with him, you know, when she was dancing. So whenever we're dancing guembe, you see a dancer, you will see her moving a lot of hips, ¿verdad? maybe smiling on the side and like that and a little bit playful. Like, it's like that sort of energy. The Yuba is more like it, it is it is more serious. It's a more serious type of uh music, type of rhythm. Uh, the dancer, you don't see her like or see him like smiling. It's not it's, you're not supposed to smile when you're dancing a yuba because this type of rhythm is more for like cuando una persona eh, fallece, normally they will play yuba or un belén. That belén is like a como una variación de, de yuba, which es más lento todavía. And that rhythm, you're supposed to be serious, right? Because you're, you're you know, that boring is how you say, another person. And this style is, you dance very rigid as well, but like in a more serious note, in a more serious note. And when you step, you step to the side. The steps, instead of going forward or backward, maybe like in Cuembe, this you're going to step to the side and very rigid as well with the skirt. We got Olande. Olande is, um, now this rhythm is very, um, very happy. This rhythm comes from the more like from the south side, from from Mayagüe. Now, in this rhythm, you will see the dancer will start like jumping a lot because it's very similar to plena. I don't know if you guys have ever heard plena before. Like plena is very joyful, right? With the same with Olante. So in Olante, the the dancer will step forward almost like jumping, they will play with the skirt. But if you see dancers from, from Mayagüez, you will see them doing a very, another variation of the step, 
which is a little bit difficult for some people. And the energy that has is like very joyful, very happy. So whenever you see a dancer dancing Olande, that's the energy that you can get uh, uh, very happy. Now, if we go to the north side again and we go to Loisa, we got Se Corrido, which is the fastest rhythm of, of all. Now that rhythm is very, very fast. So the energy is like, it has that African root to it, right? So whenever you were doing the, the basic step of say corrido, we're going to do it fast. We're going to do what is called the marullo. The marullo is this, just putting our hands like this, imitating like the waves sort of like that, right? Like the waves, like the el marullo, como lo que se hace en la playa, el marullito, just like that, right? So we're pulling that energy from, from mother nature, right? And we're doing it like this, and it's very, uh, and we do it very fast, sometimes holding the skirt, but sometimes we don't hold the skirt because in Loisa, it's cultural to dance without a skirt. The women actually imitate the movement of the skirt with their hands the majority of the time. And they have like a mixture of male steps and women's steps because they're not dancing normally with the skirt. Like if you see, uh, people for like with the skirt well basically normally it's like they are they are doing like a show or something like that but if you go to real bate in loisa you will see people very different the dynamic is totally different the energy is totally different then it's very fast it's like very joyful but very precise it's it's pretty it's pretty fun <laughs> While speaking to Marian, she eloquently described the essence of the interaction between the primo drummer and the dancer as they communicate meaning. The primo player doesn't know what I'm going to do, but he has to put sound to my movement. So the primo player is going to mark, he's going to be the translator and sound of the music that we dancers create with our bodies. The dancer is the one who creates the music that comes out of that drum. We are musicians through our bodies. But there is also a margin of interpretation of whoever plays the primo to achieve a musical precision of sound and coherence so that it sounds how it's supposed to. Those of us who dance train to be very precise with our movement because I have to be as precise as someone who plays a guitar string. If you play it offbeat, it will sound bad. I have to be precise so that the primo player marks the sound that I'm asking him for at the moment that I'm asking him for it. And there, a communication is created. Whoever touches the primo is trained to predict. We are not guessing. Every movement has a preparation. For example, if I do a shoulder roll, I raise my shoulders so when they go down, there's a sound. I throw my elbows back so when they return, there's a sound. So those of us who are playing the primo train ourselves in seeing the preparation of the movement because I give it sound when the movement ends. This is not about guessing. This is training and strict discipline. And then that communication is created. That mutual understanding is created between the primo player and the dancer to create and contribute to the music that the others are giving you as a base. You contribute in the leading role of what is spoken. When the primo player is following a dancer, like that. It sounds like what the dancer feels. It sounds like their identity. Hey, I'm Mel, one of the hosts of the Mixtape Podcast. I just wanted to take a minute to remind you that the Mixtape Podcast takes an anti-racist approach to center the contribution of Black people and culture across the Latin American diaspora through dance and music. Follow us on Instagram at mixtape.podcast and click our link tree in the bio to learn more. Don't forget, you can find all our episodes on podcast streaming platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcasts, as well as on our website, tarheels.live slash mixtape podcast. All right, back to the bomberas. Just 
During our interview with Marianne, she mentioned she had some opinions about Bomba's traditional wardrobe. We invited her to share those opinions with us. The Institute of Puerto Rican Culture, created in 1952, being a cultural branch of the government, develops a discourse of Puerto Rican identity. Before that, the Puerto Rican people did not have this definition that today everyone assumes as the official definition. Even I have struggled with this idea of identity that was proposed by the government because it was instilled in me from the time I was very small, to all of us. But before the creation of the Institute of Culture, that was not the definition of a Puerto Rican. It was a much broader idea because the Caribbean is diverse. The Caribbean has multiple histories. You can't generalize and say that there was a genocide so we no longer have anything from the Tainos. You can't do that. You can't say that our Afro-heritage is slavery. What's up with that? On the seal of the Institute of Culture, you see that the Afro figure is a man in shackles, an enslaved black man. That is not my heritage. My heritage is the free man that you enslaved. The discourse is very different. And they put the colonizer, the Spanish heritage, like the European one, with the metal helmet of a colonizing soldier who came in his war uniform, imposing. That is the official seal of the Institute of Puerto Rican Culture. Under the Institute of Puerto Rican Culture, this discourse was created, and to respond to that political propaganda of that historical moment, certain cultural expressions that respond to this discourse were chosen. Therefore, the Taino heritage, since there was a genocide in the colonial imaginary, disappeared completely. We don't have anything from the Tainos other than the vessels and things that we see in a museum or batallas, indigenous batallas that were archaeologically rescued. But at the level of a live identity, we are also denied the Taino heritage. So, for Afro heritage, they chose the Cepeda family, which is a family that was already executing Bomba, which was already a cultural institution in the town. But then the government chooses the Cepeda family as a representative of that black cultural expression of our country. And the government chooses the Sanabria family, which is also a very important family within our cultural practice. Those people are experts of Puerto Rican country music, which is also traditional music from Puerto Rico. That's how they make the connection. Does it have strings? Well, then they connect it with the European heritage. And so there you have it, the non-existent indigenous, the Afro through the Cepeda family, and the European heritage through the Sanabria family. Ensembles are created and a historical reference is taken of how women and people in general dressed in the time of slavery. And then in the Puerto Rican plena, which is a post-abolition genre, which is barely from the last century, from the century in which I was born, they locate the Puerto Rican plena chronologically and create a wardrobe for it with a knee-length skirt. But in those times, the skirts were stylized to the knee as a general fashion. Even more so in colonial times, women wore skirts. They couldn't wear pants. And those skirts were ankle length. Then those costumes were implemented. I agree with that. What I do not agree with is the detail of the costumes. Because you find dancers with folkloric costume of an enslaved person, with Victorian-like lace, with the apron in front of the belly, like a domestic slave from the southern states of the United States. And I reject that. First, because the person who helped design this wardrobe was a woman from the U.S. married to a Puerto Rican, who was part of the Institute of Culture but she did not understand anything about Bomba or Plena or anything about the Afro-Caribbean or indigenous culture of this country. And from her extremely privileged position as a person from the U.S., she designs and the Institute of Culture accepts this design of what will now be the folkloric wardrobe of the cultural expressions of the people. And those kinds of things are what stayed. Instead of taking advantage of the symbol, the essence, where these traditional wardrobes come from before slavery, to pride yourself on freedom, not colonialism. Because then you are telling me that I am the daughter of slaves. You are not telling me that I am the daughter of people who were enslaved. You are telling me that my historical reference to Afro-heritage is a slave with a shackle in his hand. What is that? That is not an identity that people can be proud of. That is why blackness is systematically denied. So those things are what I reject. I don't reject the use of the skirt, 
But I'll tell you one thing, if I don't have a bomba skirt on, I can dance bomba with my body. I don't need to put a skirt on to be able to execute bomba, because bomba is a tool of liberation that comes from the body, comes from the essence, comes from the feeling. It cannot come from, put this on so be free. No, no, no. I wear it if I want to wear it. The skirt is a tool, gives a visual effect to my performance. But I don't need to put on a bomba skirt to dance bomba because I dance bomba with my body and I move my body with the gendered language of the role I'm portraying. It's not like I'm changing anything. People have always practiced bomba in the clothes they wear every day. If at that time women dress that way, well, they use the skirt that way, but we don't dress like that anymore. I wear it if I want because it is a very eye-catchy ornament, very pretty, and I love to dance with a bomba skirt. But I also love feeling that I am capable of another expression that is still Puerto Rican bomba, but that does not tie me to a gender role. For example, there are women who don't want to dance in a skirt. Go ahead. There are men who want to dance in a skirt. Go ahead too. Because you are being genuine to yourself, with your expression, with who you are. And that's what sparks bomba. So the wardrobe becomes a thing, for me, completely secondary in the execution of bomba. This is a point of debate among many sectors, among people who carry out cultural practices. There are many perspectives and many ways. I will always be in favor of decolonization, and for me, certain details of that wardrobe considered traditional are part of the discourse that perpetuates colonialism in our psyche, so I reject them. Mama. In her 2015 article, The New Puerto Rican Bomba Movement, researcher Dr. Barbara Abadia Resac mentions that Bomba was a, quote, medium of liberation for Black human beings when facing the white explorer or colonizer, end quote. We asked Sarah, what can you tell us about Bomba dance and music as a medium of liberation? I think so many other things are tied up to liberation. So like, how can it be this platform where like you feel free, I think is up to the individual and how spiritually attuned they are when they enter the bate. Because for me, the bate is a place that doesn't really exist in a fixed space or time. So it makes it easier to kind of transcend like what's around you. It's a mode of world building. So in that sense, right, it's liberating, but in a more practical anchored approach, when you are a part of a community, especially one that lives in diaspora, right, that by nature has to contend with the tensions of being separated, you then don't have to rely on the government to aid you. Then the bate isn't just the folks that are around you in the moment where the rhythm is playing, but long after the drums stop playing, you are then still connected. So when things are going wrong, which happened in the 2019 earthquakes, right? Folks had just learned after Hurricane Maria that they couldn't trust local and national government to provide the aid to Puerto Rico that Need, that they needed to actually have. In fact, right before the 2019 earthquakes, a few months prior, folks had just, like it was all over the news in Puerto Rico that there were buildings with expired supplies because the government never passed it out. So because of that, when the earthquakes happen, folks are sending supplies directly to bomberas on the island who are then driving them around and then taking them where they're needed. So you begin to see this type of refusal, kind of just a refusal to believe the lies, to be honest, and this already in place choreography of mutual aid that is then baked into Bomba. That's always been there though, right? So folks will talk about how like, Bomba throughout the times was a way for folks to build community, to come back together, to keep tradition, to kind of marry Black, right, within Puerto Rico, but also to, to gain wisdom from the elders, right, from the mayores. So I think that there's different senses of liberation, like there's different strategies, right? There's the idea of feeling free and there's the, the idea of surviving, which when a place or an empire wants to kill you, that can be liberating to keep on living. There's also the idea of like, just making space for joy in a, in a place that's constantly trying to kill you. 
I think that Bomba is a space that not only holds joy, but it also holds space for you to contend with your grief, with your anger. And that's equally as important to acknowledge that and release that. Over the years, we have seen Bomba emerge alongside Black Lives Matter protests, as well as during the protests that led to former Puerto Rican Governor Ricardo Rosselló's resignation. We asked Sara, is Bomba or can Bomba be political? I think Bomba is always political, even if you don't think you're a political person. Just by doing something that used to be illegal, um, you are engaging in a political act, even if you don't acknowledge it. So I think it's always political, actually, um, on a small scale, on a big scale. It could definitely be bigger. I think it's even political for folks who think they're not political. Like I was in bomba classes with um, some elderly folks um, and they were dancing and they're like, I, I just want to stay fit. I just saw this one day and it looked fun. Okay. But while you're in class, you're still getting schooled on what Bomba used to be. So whether or not you're like, I am a political person, I'm going to be radical, you are going to absorb something. And by practicing in that space, by giving money to ensure that that instructor can keep living, that school keeps going, you are being maybe like a passive political agent. I think it's all political because even folks who are just trying to find themselves, right? Like I've seen some gender creative folks come into the bate and be like, I want to dance with a falda. Okay, so then they do. That could be a great political, big, like a grand political gesture, but it could also just be a personal thing for them where they weren't trying to make be a political agent. They were just trying to personally do what they wanted. I think that's freedom in itself too. Being in a class where in Puerto Rico, right, where femicide rates are high, domestic violences are high, violence against women is so like, it's one of the highest in the world. Being told by your instructor who's trying to teach you how to enter a bate and do piquetes with a falda, and she says like, make sure your falda takes up as much space as it can so that when you're in the space, no one else can enter and they can't take that space away from you. For young girls hearing that, that's important, you know? So yeah, I think it's political no matter what. We also had our last guest, Dr. Barbara Abadia Rasash, talk to us about whether she believes Bomba is or can be political. Barbara is an assistant professor of Afro-Latinidades at San Francisco State University and a prominent researcher of Bomba. If you're researching Bomba, you will come across her name. Here's what she had to say. Bomba is political because uh, it is a music that was not supposed to exist. Bomba is rebellion, community, knowledge, survival, healing, all the things that the enslavement system was trying to destroy. Throughout the history of Bomba, we can see that Bomba is political. It was not only in the past, nor nowadays when people use Bomba to protest against anti-Black racism, sexism, and colonialism, and to break gender roles. The history of Bomba is the history of a political movement fighting against injustices. In 2016, Barbara described Bomba as a marginalized rhythm. We asked Barbara and Sarah, do we still consider Bomba to be a marginalized rhythm today in 2023? Today, the presence of Bomba on the archipelago and in the Puerto Rican diasporas is huge. However, if you compare Bomba to other rhythms not associated with Blackness or musical genres in which you can observe how the rhetoric of mestizaje or how colorism works or the denial of racism still present, 
I can say that bomba is still a marginalized rhythm. I think it is marginalized, um, especially in the concept of like Puerto Rican music. When I was living in Puerto Rico, they, when I was there for research, they were saying that they had never danced bomba. They saw it on like Dia de Cultura days, right? Like only what, once a year in school when someone comes and does a presentation on culture, um, not unless you're seeking it out, that you're finding it. And if you are, most times you're not getting this like oral tradition unless you're doing the extra work, which is why I like value spaces like even in Chicago, La Escuelita de Bombera de Corazón, which I'm a part of They And especially Taller Tambuyet too, is like, they tell their students like, do bomba outside of class, like come to these events, post wires to these other events happening so that like you become a part of not only like that school, but also like the culture of bomba, the community of bomba, right? And so it's kind of like they're modeling how to live a life where bomba is a part of it actively. And I don't think that is common at all because if it was, there wouldn't be this misconception of Bombay Plana, right? That's all over. There wouldn't be this, there would be more than one book, which is Barbara Avila Resach's one like, book about Bomba in full. So I do agree with her. It is a marginalized rhythm. I think that social media um, is making it more visible, but like, is visibility the same as a knowing? I don't think so, um, which could be problematic. And I know that it annoys some people because you could tell from, well, I know from like interviewing folks, like they'll be like, oh, people go on YouTube and they see these piquetes and then they try to do them in real life. And you could tell that no one's ever taught them how to like enter an actual bate. And like, so you start to see this contention of folks who are like trying to learn from YouTube instead of like trying to become accountable to an elder. But um it's still marginal, I would say, for sure. I think it's it's becoming more visible, but it still has a lot of room for folks to take up that work. Our conversation with Marianne led us to ask about the institutionalization of Bomba. We've seen that in Cuba, after the revolution in 1959, the state institutionalizes a considerable part of Afro-Cuban culture, and this creates sort of a boom for this culture, having the economic and institutional support of the government. And you see that they start teaching Afro-Cuban culture rigorously in universities, especially the dances and the music. But as we learn throughout our conversation with Marianne, that level of formality in the teaching of bomba and perhaps Afro-Boricua culture in general is emerging not as much from a governmental institutionalization, but instead it's emerging from the people. We asked Marianne to say more about this. Yes, without a doubt, the movement has certainly grown exponentially. What's happened in the last 20 years is impressive. And after the crises that we have had with natural disasters, we had what happened in 2017, we had Hurricane Maria, and it was the communities with cultural roots that had the lowest mortality rate. The government completely ceased to exist here. Here, the people came and helped the people. And after that came the pandemic. I mean, since 2017, we have had a tough streak. I know that we are not the only country. All countries have had very hard situations, very tough. These are the situations that have happened to us. And all these events have served to reveal the reality of the colonization in our country. The people who doubted that we lived in a colony now affirm it because they experienced firsthand what it's like to be abandoned by a government that does not care about you because we are a little golden goose that generates foreign capital that does not stay here. We do not get to enjoy that capital. We produce, we work and work, and all that goes to the United States. It does not stay in our country. What remains in our country? What we produce ourselves. For me, and I say this from a very personal position, I did not open a school because I wanted to be a cultural manager since I was little. 
I opened a school because I saw the need for something that was not being met by the government, which should have provided it, or at least supported the cultural communities. I think it's wonderful that it comes from the people. It's genuine. I opened a school as a way of affirming that self-management is possible. And this work is 24-7, every day. I mean, I know it has been difficult for you to find me, but it's because we do not stop working. It's one thing after the other. I finish with you, and I'm already off struggling to go clean a place to receive people to give a class. I mean, this is the hustle and bustle. And this is possible. To the extent that more Boricuas, Afro-Boricuas, understand their real capacity to self-provide, everything here will change. And it's like what you said about the government. If the government doesn't get on the train, the train will leave the government behind. I tell you, people call me and say, I want bomba in my business, or I want bomba in my wedding, I want bomba in my school, bring me a workshop so that the girls can learn to play the drum. That is the social work that a government must assume, but the cultural sectors are doing it. And we do it because we love what we do. If I didn't love this, I would be a slave to what I'm doing, but I love what I do, and that gives me a lot of power. Being able to work on what I love is the best advice I can give anyone. We are not going to stop, whether the government gets on in or not. <laughs> we always keep going further. There are already many Bomba people who have become academics and have created courses in universities where Bomba is being talked about, studied, and practiced. And that is very important. This is only happening now. This has never happened before, not in this way, not this in depth. So we are on the right track. There are still many obstacles, but we keep going. There is no way to stop this anymore. No way. Finally, we asked Barbara, how do we see Bomba as a tool for embodying Black culture? Or more specifically, of course, Afro-Puerto Rican Black culture these days. Even though many bomberos and bomberas say that bomba is culture, y se escucha muy bonito decir bomba es cultura y es un espacio democrático, es a democratic space, etc. We can't deny that bomba is blackness. Most people connect bomba to negritud. Of course, all Puerto Ricans are Afrodescendants. Todos los puertorriqueños son afrodescendientes, pero no todos son visiblemente negros. Not all are visible blacks. I wish. All people doing bomba, don't forget that and don't let black bomberos, bomberas and bomberes behind. It is important to celebrate what is happening with bomba today, but without forgetting the origin and who were and who are the bomba elders. So while doing bomba, I think it's crucial to embody the black and Afro Puerto Rican cultures in a more visible, consistent and political way. This rhythm has been special for me to explore. When my family moved from Puerto Rico to New York, they didn't bring with them, in a way that I was aware of, the bomba rhythm. Bomba is a rhythm I've recently developed familiarity with, and with this episode, I was provided an opportunity to learn about the communal and healing power of this rhythm. As a mental health researcher, I'm inspired by the way Bomba models for us true community and expression. Thank you so much to our guests for imparting rich knowledge about this rhythm. And thank you to Andres for recommending we explore this rhythm. You are most welcome, my newly baptized Bombera. <laughs> I think my, my favorite part of this Bomba journey we just went through was to learn about how Bomba was, and very importantly, continues to be a tool of liberation and freedom for many people, and how there are a number of people pushing the boundaries of the traditional to allow for other voices to be heard. And of course, I love the fact that there are all women Bomba companies and that there are barrileras representing the richness that women bring to drumming. I think that is just fantastic. Muchas, muchas gracias a nuestras invitadas por compartir su conocimiento con nosotros también. There are so many events in the DMV area over the next few months with the group Semilla Cultural, as well as Taller Tambuye in Puerto Rico. 
Look out for Instagram stories from us about opportunities to learn more about Bomba in your area. Y antes de despedirnos, let me give a special shout out to Marisa Melchiorre, who translated and provided the voiceover for Marian Torres. Marisa, muchas gracias. Thanks for listening. This is Mixtape. Thanks for listening to today's episode. To listen to the songs featured in this episode and songs featured in other episodes, check out the Season 2 playlist, which can be found at our website, tarheels.live slash mixtapepodcast. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at mixtape.podcast, as well as Twitter and YouTube, which are easily accessed through our website. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and turn on notifications for all our new episodes. Have any suggestions, questions, or comments? Email us at themixtapepodcast at gmail.com. You can also send audio clips of reflections to the content to be featured on our episode. This episode is sponsored in part by the Orange County Arts Commission. Thanks for listening. This is Mixtape.